Well, good morning. We are beginning, uh, or continuing, that's not the right, beginning is not the right word, continuing. We're continuing our series through the Reformation. We are thinking together uh, about the effects of the Reformation on our faith today, how the truths of the Reformation still impact uh, our lives and, and how the, the truths that were recovered during the Reformation should still uh, be shaping our churches and, and such as that. And so last week we talked about how the Reformation began, how Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door uh, of the Church of Wittenberg on Castle Church. And we talked about how he didn't realize it, but he was starting what would become an incredible movement and a movement we call the Reformation. And so here, as we celebrate the 500th anniversary, which will be October 31st, we want to continue thinking together this month about the Reformation. Uh, This morning, we're going to turn the clock about 10 years back, and we're going to think uh, a bit about what was happening in Martin Luther's life as a young man. Uh, He was a college student and preparing to, to go into law, and he had gone home on the weekend to visit his folks, you know, like college students do now, get a, a meal cooked by mom, maybe get a little clothes washed or something like that. Luther had gone home like that. He was on his way back to the university when he found himself in a terrible thunderstorm. So he's in this storm, uh, he's scared, and suddenly lightning strikes very near him. And at that moment, Luther cried out. He cried out to a, to a saint, but he promised that if Luther, that if God would save him, that, that he would go into ministry. And so, uh, just a little later, Luther left his training in law, and he joined a monastery. And he poured his life into the monastery. In fact, Luther said this, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. When Luther led the Mass for the very first time as a young priest, he began to utter the words of the liturgy as as the church was about to observe the Eucharist. He said, we offer unto thee the living, the true, eternal God. And at that moment, Luther was paralyzed. He he couldn't speak. And in reflection of, of what happened that first Mass, this is what Luther wrote. At these words, the words that he was uttering before observance of the Eucharist, he says, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall a miserable little pygmy say, I want this. I ask for that, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin and I am speaking to the living eternal and true God and so this young priest Martin Luther was overwhelmed at the thought of standing before God given his own sinfulness and he was particularly troubled at the thought of handling the body and the blood of Jesus you see and the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that when the Eucharist is observed, that the elements, that the wine and the bread actually become the, the body and the blood of Jesus. And so Luther, as he was 
leading this mass was overwhelmed at the thought of, of handling Christ himself. Luther knew the weight of his sin, and he felt so unworthy to be standing there. He felt so unworthy. He longed to be right with God, to have a sense of, of peace with God. And this morning, as we continue through this journey of the Reformation, we're going to think together about how you can get right with God. And we're going to consider the struggle in Luther's life. We'll be in Romans chapter 1 as we think through the question of how do you make peace with God? How do you get right with God? Of course, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church at Rome. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In this passage, we see that God saves the guilty through faith alone. God saves the guilty through faith alone. So how does God save the guilty through faith? Well, our text gives us two truths to help us think about how God saves the guilty through faith. First, God's power is at work to save when the gospel is believed. God's power is at work to save when the gospel is believed. Look there in verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. In this culture, there was a real sense in which a person should walk in honor and wouldn't want to be shamed. And there were probably those who who said to Paul, Paul, why are you giving up your life? You have all of these Jewish credentials to preach a guy who was crucified. Why are you doing that? And we know that Luther faced all sorts of difficulties in his ministry. He was made fun of in Athens for preaching. In Galatia, he was stoned. In Philippi, he was imprisoned. But none of that slowed Luther down. He didn't stop preaching the gospel. Why? Why did Luther not stop preaching the gospel? He says here, it's the power of God to save. So he was committed to preaching Christ. He was committed to preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4 helps us to understand what the gospel is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, that he was buried, and that he was raised to new life. And Paul says, because that message has the power to save and to rescue, I'm not going to quit preaching it. In fact, I'm not ashamed of it. He says it's the power of God. The, The power of God is at work when the gospel is preached and when the gospel is believed. Now, we know that God is omnipotent. He's unlimited in his power. He can do anything that he wants to do. And what we see is the power of God moves and and brings a person to, to belief. The gospel overcomes a sinful and rebellious heart. In God's power, he saves when, when the gospel is received in faith. In fact, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says it this way, for the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So he says it's the power of God to bring salvation. Of course, salvation means to be saved or to be rescued, to be saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5.9, Paul said, how much more then? since we have now been declared righteous 
by the, by the blood until we be saved through him from wrath. What's Paul saying? He's saying that, that we're saved from God's wrath. Now, many of us as kids were really good at make-believe, good at pretend. We could, we could make an oak tree a spaceship or we could make a long chair a boat. I mean, we were, we were good at that. But you know what? As adults, sometimes we have a tendency to, pay, to play make-believe when it comes to our understanding of who God is. We, we want to kind of make a God in our minds that, well, it's just like we like him. You know, kind of a jolly guy, a little like Santa Claus. Ah, he's going he's gonna to give me all kinds of good things. He's always got a smile on his face. Maybe a little bit like a, a grandpa that spoils their grandkids rotten. We, we want to make God into to something like that. But in reality, that's just a make-believe God. That's a pretend God. The God of the Bible, well, he's a God whose anger rages against the sin of humanity. He, he has anger because of our sin. We, we have this idea that he owes us, but in reality, he doesn't owe us anything. We owe him. You see, our sinfulness is an act of rebellion. God created us. Every one of you are creations of God. He created you. He gave you life. But then many of us, instead of falling before God and saying, God, I want to surrender my life to you. You made me. You created me. You gave me life. What do we do? Every one of us, we rebel against God. We do what we want to do. We say to God, get lost. I'll do what I want. I'll say what I want. I'll think what I want. I'll do what I want. I'll s-. Now, for some, it's more obvious than for others. But every one of us has a sinful heart. And God's response to our sin and to our pure impurity is wrath. He does not look upon sin. Now, you say, well, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he just say, well, it's not a big deal? He can't. God's very nature is one of complete purity. For him to ignore our sin, to wink at our sin, would be to compromise his very nature. He can't do that. So understand, God is not going to overlook your rebellion and your sin any more than a hungry bird is going to overlook a juicy worm. It isn't going to happen. He knows your sin. He knows your rebellion. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to put away the God of our imagination and we need to come to terms with the God of the Bible, a God who takes sin seriously. So Paul says he's rescued us from wrath. He's also rescued us from from living in darkness, from living a life of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says it this way, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of of the son he loves. So Paul says he's rescued everyone who who believes. What does it mean to believe? Well, faith is the way that we receive salvation. Belief is the way that we receive salvation. It's a response to God. It's a response to the gospel. So faith isn't simply agreeing with some statements about God. In fact, if you walk around and talk to people most everyone, not everyone, of course, but most people are going to, going to say, sure, I believe in God. I believe there's a God. So is that faith? Is that what the Bible is talking about? Is that the kind of faith that makes a person right with God? It's not. 
One pastor explains saving faith like this. It's mental. The mind must understand the truths of the gospel. So there is this sense in which you're saying, okay, I believe Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again. I believe that. I'm committed to that. But it's not just that. It's not just a mental ascent to doctrinal truth. It's also something going on emotionally. It's an embrace of the gospel. It, it's a sense of brokenness over sin and a joy that you know God's kindness. And it has to do with the will, the, the will of, uh, that, that says, I'm going to submit to Christ. So when we put our faith in Christ, saving faith is not just knowing facts and agreeing with facts, but it's placing our life in his hands. It's saying to him, I believe in you. I love you. I want to follow you. I am putting my life in your hands. That's saving faith. It's not just mental assent. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John Calvin, another one of the reformers, explained it like this. We compare faith to a kind of vessel because we're incapable of receiving Christ unless we are emptied and come with open mouth to receive his grace. What's Calvin saying? He's saying that, that to come to God in faith is to say, God, I don't bring anything. I'm like an empty vessel. Fill me. Fill me with your grace. I'm giving you my life. I'm putting my life in your hands. You, you fill me. And Paul says here, it's for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and, and then to the Greek. So being God's chosen people, the, the Jews had great responsibility. Jesus came to the Jews. He came to the Jews to preach the gospel. And then the, the gospel began to spread among the Gentiles. In fact, we see in Paul's preaching, he would often go to the synagogue and preach. Uh, we see that in Acts 13, 46, 47. And then he would begin preaching to the, to the Greeks or uh, to, to those who were not Jews. Greek here simply means a person who was, who was not a Jew. So we've seen that God's power is at work when the gospel is preached and believed. Second, God's righteousness is credited to the guilty when the gospel is believed. God's righteousness is credited to the guilty when the gospel is believed. The righteousness of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God and then he says in verse 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the righteousness of God. When we're talking about the righteousness of God, what we're saying is we're talking about God declaring a person righteous. God saying, you know what? You are righteous. Now bear with me because I'm fixing to use a few theological words that most of us don't use in everyday conversation, but I'm gonna explain them. So don't just tune out, tune in. When we talk about righteousness and, and receiving this righteousness of God, what we would say is that God imputes, he imputes his righteousness to the guilty who turn to him. This is to say that God imputes his righteousness. It's to say that God gives us credit for his righteousness. So if God imputes his righteousness to you, he basically takes his own righteousness and he gives you credit for that righteousness. So Jesus came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. He didn't do anything wrong. He was sinless. He lived a perfect life. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we get credit for that perfect life that Jesus lived. Jesus died on the cross and he took God's wrath against our sin 
and he placed it on his own son. That's the kind of love that God has. He's a holy God, but he's not just a holy God. He's a God who loves. He gave up his own son, placing our sin upon Jesus. And so when we talk about righteousness being imputed to us, it's because of the work that, that Jesus did on the cross. So when we trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. They're wiped away on the basis of Jesus taking our place, taking that punishment that we deserve upon himself. Not only that, when we trust in in the Lord, God takes the righteous life that Christ lived and he says, you know what, you're righteous. When we put our faith in him, you're righteous. It's not because we've been good or we've done a lot of good things, but because he's giving us credit for what his son did. We call this the doctrine of justification. Another one of those words we don't use a lot, but doctrine of justification. And this is simply the belief that God declares us innocent and gives us the status of righteousness based on what Christ did at the cross. So justification doesn't make a person holy. What justification does is it declares a person holy before God, righteous from God's perspective. So there's, there's another word called sanctification, and that word means to become more and more Christ-like. So we believe that a person is justified when they put their faith in Jesus. At that moment, God declares them righteous. And then sanctification occurs as we continue to grow and become more like him. But our being saved and being made righteous before God isn't based on sanctification. It's based on what Jesus did at the cross, which we call justification. So let's suppose that you're in school. Some of you are in school, and for others, uh, it's going to take you back quite a few years. But let's say you're in high school, and you had a, a really, a really tough test, and you just bombed the test. You did horrible on the test. And then the person sitting next to you made a hundred. And what if your teacher said to you, you know what, I'm going to give you credit that the other student made. I'm going I'm to take that credit that they earned and I'm going to give it to you. That hundred that they made, that's what I'm putting in the grade book for your test score. Wouldn't that be incredible? We would say the, the teacher granted you or gave you credit for the other student's righteousness. That's what happens at justification. God takes the perfect righteous life that Jesus lived and he gives you and me credit for it. And, and he, it makes it where God can look at you and look at me and say, he's innocent, she's innocent. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to us, has been imputed to us. What an incredible truth. Now, Paul teaches about justification in Romans 4 as well. Now, some of you may be thinking, hey, pastor, what about James? Isn't there a verse in James that says something different than what you're saying right now? James 2.24 says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, when you're interpreting Scripture, You always interpret Scripture with Scripture, and you interpret less clear Scripture with more clear Scripture. So we're going to imply one of those Reformation principles that we talked about last week. Uh, Now, what James is doing is he's giving us a test of faith. James is saying if a person claims to be justified, if a person claims to have saving faith but doesn't live it out, James is saying that's not really 
saving faith. Justification hasn't really happened. That's not, that's not that kind of faith. The kind of faith that justifies a person before God or that makes a person right before God is the faith that will also begin to shape them and change them and help them to grow. So while these works where we begin to change and become more like Jesus, these aren't the things that save us. If we really have been saved by Jesus, then these things are inevitable. We begin to change. So faith alone saves but faith won't remain alone. Faith alone saves, but faith won't remain alone. If we're truly saved, our lives will begin to be changed. That's what James is saying. So Paul goes on to say, from faith for faith. Likely this is Paul's way of saying, being made right with God is all of faith. It is entirely faith. And then he continues on at the end of verse 17. The righteous will live by faith. And here he's citing Habakkuk 2.4 to, to emphasize the centrality of faith, the centrality of faith in his, in his saints in the Old Testament and the importance of faith today in the New Testament. And it emphasizes the fact that true faith isn't just a one-time event, but it's a way of life. You live as a believer with an abiding trust in God. Now, because we believe that God saves the guilty through faith alone, Let's consider the implications for this in in our lives and also in our church. First, your sin is far too serious for you to be in a right relationship with God based on your own good works. Your sin's far too serious. Now, in America, we've been given so much and we have a tendency to develop a sense of entitlement. And we can do this spiritually as well. Well, God owes me. Look at, look at what a good person I am. How, how could God do something like that? Look, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. But when we do that, what we forget is that God is blazingly pure. And we forget that we are exceedingly sinful. Our sin is far too serious for us to try to to come to God on our own merits. Number two, the gospel is the good news that what you can't do, Christ did. It's the good news that what you can't do, Christ did it. This is incredible. We can be right with God, not because of our good behavior. We can be right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. God loved sinners so much that he sacrificed his own son, his own son to take our place. Third, the God of the universe saves you on the basis of simple faith. Saves you on the basis of simple faith. If if you look or study uh, other religions, if you study the cults, you're gonna find that all of them are gonna put some ladder up to God and they're gonna tell you, you gotta climb this ladder, you gotta gotta do this, you gotta do that, You you gotta do this, you gotta do that. You've got to keep working. But that's not the gospel. What does the gospel say? The gospel says the God of the universe made a way for us to know him. It's not by climbing a ladder. It's by bowing down before him and saying, Jesus, I believe my life's in your hands. That's how a person is saved. It's not faith plus something else. The gospel is that it's faith plus nothing else. It's faith alone. Now, this is what got Luther in trouble with the church. It was fine to say that a person was saved by faith because the church affirmed that. 
But it was never faith plus nothing. It was never faith alone. Well, it was faith, and then it was observing the sacraments. It was faith and, and the prayers of the saints. It was always something that you had to add, good behavior that you had to add. But the gospel says that to be made right with God, it's faith alone. Fourth, once you've placed your faith in Christ, you are secure. Once you've placed your faith in Christ, you're secure. Brothers and sisters, if you have been justified, that is, if there's been a time in your life where you've said to God, I'm putting my faith in you, I'm calling out to you, I want to follow you. If that's happened in your life, then you're secure. You're forever his. Even if you fumble the ball, even if you, even if you mess up, you're his. What a beautiful truth. What an incredible truth. There are some of you who are believers here today and who the devil beats up on all the time and you're always struggling with this lies that the devil says, you know what, you're not worthy. Look at the things you've done. Look at your past. Look, look at how you acted yesterday. And the devil's always throwing punches at you, making you feel less than, making you feel like you don't deserve it. And the reality is you don't deserve God's grace. Grace, you are unworthy. But because you're in Christ, he's made you worthy. Because you're in Christ, he's made you righteous. And so now we're set free from guilt. We don't have to live in shame. What an incredible truth. We don't have to fear the future. Because if we're in Christ, we're secure. We know what the future holds. Whatever this life brings at us, and even when it means this life brings death, if we're in Christ, we still know the future. Heaven's our eternal home. What security is there, brothers and sisters? What security? Fifth, there is no security. There is no security apart from faith in Christ. There's none. Imagine being on a leaky raft in the middle of the ocean. A leaky raft in the middle of the ocean, that's trying to find security apart from Christ. You might stay afloat for a while, but friend, it will never save you. You will never be saved. Eventually, that raft's going to run out of air, and you're going to find that what you had planned and counted on, that it will not work. There's no security apart from faith in Christ. Fifth, let's think in terms of the church. What does this truth have to do with the church? Well, a faithful church is committed to justification by faith alone. In other words, a faithful church is committed to the preaching and teaching of the gospel that a person is made right with God by faith alone. Not by faith plus, but just simple faith. Now, Luther had learned as a part of the church that God will not deny grace to those who do their best. That, that's what he was trained to believe. God will not deny grace to those who do their best. So as a young man, he kept trying to do better. He kept trying to, to be a better person, kept trying to, to, to please God. But he still felt so guilty. He still felt as if things were not right. 
And Luther was reading and studying because he was, he was teaching theology and Bible and he was teaching through the Psalms. And at one point for, for this class that he was teaching, he, he really began to read Romans and, and to study the first chapter of Romans. And he kept struggling with verse 17, Romans 1, verse 17. He kept, he kept struggling through it and, and reflecting on this time. This is what Luther said. This is what was going through his mind as he studied Romans 1. Isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? Why does God heap sorrow upon sorrow through the gospel and through the gospel threaten us with his justice and his wrath? This, Luther says, was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. So Luther says, I agonized with this. I felt the weight of my sin. I felt the weight of God's justice and I couldn't figure out an escape because I could never be good enough. I could never feel like I had done enough. And he said, I just, I kept agonizing with this verse. And then finally, as Luther was studying Romans 1, he put aside the church tradition and he did what we talked about last week. He said, you know what? I'm just going to look at the scripture, the scripture alone. And as he looked at verse 17, he said, this is it. I can't be saved on my own merit. I can only be saved by what Jesus has done. And Luther said, I began to understand that this verse meant that the justice of God is revealed through the gospel. The merciful God justifies by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. All at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. What does Luther say when I realized that I couldn't do this, that I was going to have to rely on Jesus, that Jesus could do it, but I couldn't? It was as if I was born again. I was saved. It was as if the gates of heaven opened wide. You've got to remember the time period that this is happening. If Luther was right, then this was revolutionary because the church said that if you were going to be made right with God, you had to be a part of the church. You had to go to church because the church mediated God's grace. The church, by, by observing the sacraments and, 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 and such, that's how you would get grace. By, by being good and observing penance, that's how you would get grace. But what Luther was saying is that a person gets right with God not by sacraments or being a part of a church that that mediates the sacraments but a person gets right before God by calling out to him in faith it's a transaction that happens between the Lord himself and that person there is no other mediator the Lord saves on the basis of faith and so this was revolutionary. This is one of the reasons that you see the Reformation having such an impact because people began to say, I can know God personally. I don't have to have some other means of getting grace. No, by faith, I can receive the grace of God. I don't have to have the prayers of Mary. I don't have to observe the other sacraments. I don't need the prayers of of other saints. And this was a huge turning point in Luther's life. And needless to say, in the entire Reformation, God saves through faith alone. 
So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, be grateful that you don't have to try to call your way into heaven, that you don't have to try to be good enough to get to heaven. Friends, you could never be good enough. But be grateful that there was one who could be good enough and that there was one who was good enough and that if you'll put your faith in him, his righteousness will be credited to you. God will look down on you if you're in Christ and say, he's mine, she's mine, she's perfect, he's perfect, he's innocent, she's innocent. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. Friends, if that's you, if that's happened in your life, then today rest in him. Grateful that God has shown you that kind of mercy. But if you're here today and you're not in Christ, then what I'm about to say has the most urgency imaginable. Friend, according to God's word, you're on a raft, it's a leaky raft. There's nothing inside. You're in the middle of the ocean. It will endure for a while, but it will not endure for eternity. See, the Bible teaches that you will stand before God one day, and you will stand before Him as judge. And that day, there will be no negotiations, no plea bargains. You're not going to pull out your scales and set them there on the counter before God and say, see, I did more good things than bad things. No, there'll be none of that. No clever arguments about how good you were. For in that day, all that will matter is if you had said to Jesus, I'm putting my faith in you. My life is in your hands. And if that's happened, you'll know the the glory of heaven, the joy of eternity. But if it hasn't happened and your hope has been that you were going to tell God how good you are, that raft's raft's out of air. That raft's out of air. There'll be no excuses. There'll be no second chances So today, won't you turn to Christ in simple faith? Won't you say to him, God, I'm putting my life in your hands. I got nothing to bring. But I'm calling out to you today, Jesus. Would you save me? Join me in prayer.